Greetings, Amigops and Top Teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Opposite me today, as he is every week, is your lovely co-host, Michael. As we do every week, one of us will be bringing a topic to the table. This week, I will admit, I know the topic. Mike knows the topic. Hopefully, you have seen the most recent season of True Detective, True Detective 3. Mike and I both love the season, and we're here to talk about it. Mike has put together a top 10 version of a list related to this season somehow. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to go, but we will be discussing True Detective Season 3 through the lens of a top 10. By the end of this list, we'll have a definitive version of it. Mike, let's get started. All right, K-Dog. So you already mentioned the topic. We're going to be talking about True Detective Season 3. I think the the angle we want to take here is to think about the return to form. Because as you and I agree... And I think most of our listeners will agree. Season two was just a just a poop fest. It was, as, as the the professional critics would say, a scatological mess. It's a very fancy way of saying it was terrible and shitty. Dumpster fire. S- dumpster fire. So we're going to talk about the ways season three matched some of the things season one did. I think you and I agreed one of the biggest reasons season three was so good, where season two was terrible was that it stuck closely to the formula laid out by season one. Now, now, <laughs> before we get negative, and, and I'm going to lay this out, and then I want to hear your, your overall top you know review of the season. But I think while we agree that a lot of the things season three did were similar to things they did in season one, they tweaked enough things to keep it fresh, to make us you know stay in on this season, and make sure we didn't just repeat season one. So I think... While you and I and most people would acknowledge that season three owes a great debt to season one, I ultimately think it stands on its own um, and does a really nice job of advancing the show. So that's kind of my take. I'd love to hear your overall thoughts on the season briefly before we dive into the top ten. Yeah, we had a brief discussion, probably episode six through the season, where we're not lamenting, but definitely calling out, wow, there sure seem to be a lot of plot similarities to season one and how that wasn't necessarily a bad thing and how Mm -hmm. it just lends itself to be a good engaging suspenseful story and my review of the season at that point was good however with the way that this the season ended and now that i've had a little bit of time to process it my opinion of the season has skyrocketed because i think that what like the the similarities to season one were in a way kind of an extremely long con and it was a very effective way to guide our expectations and our assumptions. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us are making assumptions about where this season was going. And then at the very last second, they were like, "Mm, no, we never actually mentioned anything like that. This is, this is what happened. And it was a very, very, very clever redirection in my opinion. Yep. And I think as a result, the way you should probably, the way I look at the season overall now is that it's more about the two guys, the detectives, or the two guys and his wife. So like, it's more of a character centric season than was the first season. And I think the ways that it was similar to the first season really highlight that when you get to the end of it. So I very, very pleased with how the season wrapped up, even though admittedly right at the end, Dylan and Elegis and I were all watching it here. We were a little bit disappointed, 
Yep. But I think with some more reflection, I've really come to appreciate what they did. I couldn't agree more. I think your overall review is perfect. I think, so I watched this with Jerry, and we both kind of had the the what the fuck reaction to the last episode. I think we've agreed we're going to rewatch the last episode, but I think just a little time away from it, I've also reevaluated my feelings and come to really appreciate what it did. But I think the biggest thing that this season indicates is that some writers do really well with genre and genre frees them up to do things. Whereas other writers genre locks them down. I think Nick Pizzolatto proved that sticking true to this genre and this formula allows him to explore new things rather than pinning him down. It allows him to explore new things. Some people get too stuck on their genre and it kind of traps them to do the same thing over and over again. But I think he did a really nice job of, of using that same structure to allow him to build off and explore new things. Like that was why this season felt similar, but also allowed it to be a little different. Yeah, absolutely. But I think very, very intentional on his part to kind of use the same kind of structure Mm -hmm. as before. So totally agreed. Wonderful. I, I, yeah. Well, okay. So, so so what specifically are we going to be talking about then? So we're going to talk about themes, techniques, just stuff that reminded us, of the good old days of True Detective. Things that season three did that remind us of season one and things that they did really well. So we're going to also talk a little bit about season two. I want to very get right out in front of this for all the listeners, especially you, Quinn. When I reference season two, I promise you I remember nothing about it. So anything I say will be dismissive, negative, and probably incorrect. But I will be using it as a, as a very easy foil to why seasons one and three were so great. So just be clear, if you're going to try to fact check me, anybody on season two, you're right, I'm wrong. I just remember that it sucked. I love that. <laughs> just get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, just get that right out of the way. Um, all right, so this is going to be all over the place with like specific, broad, blah, blah, blah. We'll, we'll just talk it through. Yep. All right, so number 10, theme song. You pointed this out. The theme songs of season one and season three are very similar. <laughs> they, <laughs> they're kind of slow ballads that are trying to give you a sense of dread as we see pictures of the main characters superimposed over creepy stuff. It works really well. That season one opening song and opening credits was one of the best I've ever seen. Season three was great. I would actually rank the theme songs the best is season one. The yes. second is season two, and I think this is actually weakest of the three, although it really, over the course of eight episodes, it really grew on me. Yes. The thing about, so the season two theme song actually fits in that it's very slow, mm-hmm. but one thing that I like about season one and three's theme songs is that both feel extremely, like, geographically specific. That is exactly what I was just going to say. They are so specific to a place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so they kind of set the, they really, really, really effectively set the mood. And mm-hmm. I think season one's theme is a little creepier <laughs> with the <laughs> lyrics. Yep. And season three is a little bit, a little bit more subtle, but yep. the, the effect is the same. By the time the episode starts rolling, I have a sufficient sense of dread and foreboding. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I know what my characters look like atop <laughs> abandoned or derelict uh, scenery 
That is absolutely true. Like I, I kept waiting the whole season. I was like, what is happening with that fire with Mahershala Ali's yes. shirt off? I love that. It's cool to look forward to that. I love when theme songs do that. Very famously, and by famously, I mean famous to our little group, done in the uh, the appearance of the fox in The Missing. Oh, Oh, no. So just last thing about the theme song. So this is called Death Letter, and it's covered by uh, Cassandra Wilson. It's also been covered by the White Stripes. It's apparently a very famous uh, sort of bluesy song that's been covered by a lot of people. Wow. It's a Yeah, it's about a guy who gets a letter telling him that his lost love has died. So listen closely. It's also sad, not just creepy. We've been watching season three with subtitles on because... Mm. Mahershala Ali has quite a, a rasp. So, yeah, it's tough sometimes. But it, actually, it definitely very much helped in the theme song, too. I was like, oh, that's what this is all about. I like that. That's It's interesting how that can add or or subtract from a an experience, but I'm glad that it added we, for you. We learned from our mistakes in True Detective Season 2 because we could not understand a word that they were saying. Yeah. So. It was, it was all shitty. Yep. Gritty. Tough. Sure. Tough stuff from season two. Sure. Sure. All right. Yep. Uh, all right. So number nine, one of the most foundational reasons that season one worked well was the Holmes and Watson dynamic. And they brought that back for season three. Season two, one of the biggest problems, and this I know I remember correctly, yeah. is that there's too many main characters. There's just too many of them. I, we can't possibly give a shit about that many people, and we didn't. Pick two. Pick two. And pick any two. It's and the Panera thing. It is. You pick two. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Mick pick two. So season three did a great job of bringing back the Holmes and Watson dynamic. Now, I want to reiterate, if season three just did everything season one did, it wouldn't work. The thing that it does is it introduces the same sort of surface level dynamic, which is one brilliant detective, one regular kind of Joe. Over the course of the season, as in season one, your perceptions shift regarding that dynamic a little bit. I think the the team is different enough in season three, especially because we realize Mahershala Ali really is not the crazy, brilliant detective that Cole or uh, yeah, that Rust was in yeah. season one. He ends up being much more of a fallible regular Joe in a way that's really nice. But initially, you get that same sort of sense. And it also allows you to focus on this central relationship, which is really important. Yeah, agreed. I think the comparisons are, are, it's easier to make a comparison between Marty and, uh, Roland because both of them are the guys that know how to goof off with other guys in the office and know how to play yep. the game and can kind of cover for the mistakes of their partner. Yep. They, they, Roland reminded me quite a bit of, uh, Woody Harrelson's character, so. Though, I think importantly, and we'll kind of get into this a little bit more later, they do such a nice job of showing the ways he's very different from Marty. Marty is a deeply, deeply selfish person. Like, no a, wildly, a wildly immature and selfish person, and in a really, another clever turn, the Steven Dorff character, Roland, isn't. He's not. He's actually, he actually is much better than you would have ever expected from the way the season started. Yeah, no, I was, he's a very lovable character, and I really, really hated in season, or episode seven, when I really believed that he was part of it for a moment. Oh man, wow. Yeah. That was a tough moment. We were throwing around theories in the, 
in the watching room. And, like, it seems like Roland has kind of, in a couple of times, like, stepped a little bit out of bounds to inhibit Wayne. You're like, ugh, we don't want to believe it, but, uh, and thank God. Thank God we didn't That's have to. tough. So basically, you did to him the same thing that he did to uh, the kid's dad, where he shines the light of suspicion on him, and it just breaks him. Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't end with, with Roland exiting stage yeah. right, but... Yeah. So... I'm glad he didn't... I'm glad he didn't hear. Yeah. <sighs> Tough one. All right, so number eight is very closely related to number nine. Uh, it's about men. So, I don't think on its <laughs> surface this is a good or a bad thing. I think taking the writer, Nick Pizzolatto, into account, it's a very good thing. It seems as though he may not know any women... he definitely doesn't have any like intimate relationships with strong and multi-layered women and so when he writes women they're not very good but he is outstanding at understanding the relationships between men he's really good at understanding sort of the combination of like the primal you know who's the bigger dog who's the alpha dog relationships he understands fathers and sons he also understands like how much more complicated these relationships are because they're based on intellect and not just physicality. He gets how men interact with each other. He did an incredible job with the Wayne and Roland relationship with the Roland relationship with, I keep forgetting his name. What's the dad's name? Uh, Tom. Yeah. Tom, the relationship with Tom. He did it. I thought a really nice job with uh, Wayne and his son when Wayne realized his son was cheating like, he just, he gets how men interact, and I think much of a loss as it is for the show that there aren't any really interesting female characters, I think it made the show a lot better that he stopped pretending he understood women. You don't think that, I forget her name. Amelia. Yeah, you don't think she's an interesting character? I thought she was okay. I think, I think she was okay. I think yeah. that she... We definitely are supposed to agree with Wayne a lot in being annoyed at her for wanting to be involved in this mystery, which I find a little bit tough to to stomach because it's very understandable. This is a guy who really is bringing his work home emotionally and kind of just literally in doing all of his work. It's I think it's pretty reasonable to think she would get pulled into thinking about this mystery as much as she does. And I think not until very late in the show are we allowed any sort of window into empathizing with that desire? Like, I think we're kind of, it's written in such a way that we agree with Wayne that she's kind of being an annoying, you know, gnat just circling around all the time. Wow. That's just not how I, I interpreted it. Like I was, I found myself kind of annoyed with Wayne for Mm. being, I mean, I obviously sympathize with him. Like the last thing he wants to, talk about when he's not working on the case is the case again if his wife is writing a book about it or like it was annoying when she brought it up at dinner that one time but i think in general i thought he was being a little petty like i actually found her to be a really interesting compelling character especially because she's a extremely capable detective and like mm-hmm. not someone that's in a detective role which i really yeah. enjoyed uh because Primarily, the people in these stories that are doing the detective work are the licensed, you know, law enforcement people. So, I, I thought she was a really good injection of, and I don't, I don't know, like, we'd have to ask just what she thought about, like, <laughs> portraying her as a woman specifically, but I, I found her character to be pretty interesting. And so, yeah, 
I was a little, I was, I was really disappointed with how they treated the character at the end. It was just kind of like, we didn't, we didn't get any kind of like closure on her story really, I feel like. So maybe, I guess maybe that's partially what I'm thinking about too, is I think, I see what you're saying and you do raise good points. And I think she probably is a stronger character than I'm giving her credit for. But I think overall the show at the end refocused on the two main characters that it cared most about. And I think that's where his strengths lie. But you do raise some good points. So maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe it's just, I don't know. I don't know exactly what, how it fits in with this season because there was a one, one very clear main female character. I still feel like she was one of the weakest characters. And I think where the show was at its best is when it was focusing on those two. And I think that was something that was definitely reflected in season one. I definitely agree that Wayne and Roland, that whole thing is my favorite part of the show. But I will say, in season two, my favorite character was Rachel McAdams. So I agree. That was a little bit of a wild card. It's He just kind of, I think he wrote that entire season too quickly. And maybe he (laughs) forgot to make her sort of a one-dimensional, like, through a man's eyes woman. (laughs) Maybe. Though no slights, no slights to Michelle Monaghan in season one either. No, she's fantastic. See, yeah. that's she is fantastic. The character wasn't. She yeah. was. Yeah, fair enough. In my opinion. Agreed. Alright, so shall we talk about anything else here, Kyle? I think what we should do is talk about a not top three if you have a prepared one. How will we know when to start? I'll I'll cue it. Watch this. Cue not top three music. <laughs> Hey, thanks, Kev. That was awesome. Yeah. All right. So I put together a not top three, which is things that season three didn't do, which made it better. So this is actually a not top three of one. <laughs> it, it was nothing like season two. That's the not top three. That was the thing that this season did really well, is it was literally nothing like season two. <laughs> Thank Do you have God. any others to add? I get, like, for me, a not top three would be like, a thing that season one didn't do, that this one did, that I really liked, and we've kind of discussed how it's not, like, even though we think that it is for a yeah. solid 98% of the show, this is not a story about organized trafficking syndicate that preys on children and abuses them and a myriad of ways that are really too awful to think about for too long. And I'm glad that it, it ended up not being that, like it was something a little more, um, still awful, but a little more innocent. Someone that had suffered a serious trauma and was looking for a way to kind of cope. And obviously like at the end of, and (laughs) we pointed out like someone was like, well, uh, wow, it's kind of shitty that they ended up killing that. Remember the Hoyt guy? They're yeah. like, wow, they ended up killing that guy for no reason. And then we were like, no, he did kill Tom. No, and, it wasn't for no reason. <laughs> yeah, like, that guy was still a bad person. And there were bad yeah. things that happened. But, like, it's less of a pervasive, like, societal problem that we're trying to shed light on. And more of an isolated incident that had a very, very sad ending. Yeah. Which was very satisfying in a very different way from season one. 
So we're actually going to talk a little bit about this dynamic a little later in a slightly different way, but I'm glad that you introduced this. I was, I wasn't sure which way to do a not top 10 here or not top three here because I have a positive and a negative like in the title. Yeah. So it's sort of hard. It's hard to pick which way to go, but I like that one. That's a good, that's a good pick for the not top one. All right. So number seven, number seven relates a little bit to the ending you were talking about here. I love that like season one, it has an ending that feels like a cop-out and feels really obvious and will get some people to say that's why this season sucked. But when you think about it, I actually think there's way more to it. So what I mean by that is season one, I remember a lot of people complaining that Rust had sort of just like found God and, and found religion and he sort of like gave up on his nihilism. And I, I couldn't disagree with that take on how season one ended more. Because I think you get that nice little music and he talks about, you know, man, I think the lat's winning. Like he has that whole thing and it, and it really sounds like, you know, a, what is it? Road to Damascus kind of like he's yeah. had a flash of light moment. But I think in the context of that show, I don't think that's what that was. I think that that was show, I think it was showing somebody being tempted by a different way of thinking that's a little bit easier for him. And I strongly believe that if Nick Pizzolatto wrote like a two years later version of this, not all is well and good in his world. And so I think what it did really well, though, is it sort of served up the easy ending. But I don't believe that that's how it meant to end. It was supposed to be like that easy thing. In the same way, I think that this one, it sort of offers up the... Hey, Wayne realized that this case wasn't his whole life and he's learned to let it go thing. And I just, I don't think that that's all that that is. I think there's a lot more to this. I think it's a much more complicated ending. And I don't necessarily think that that was just the end for him. Like he just, I don't think that that's how this ends. Well, let's talk about that. Do you think that he knows that he found her or did he forget? Because at least for us, we had, <clears throat> in the moment, we both thought different things. So, like, some of us thought, like, oh, my God, this is terrible. He doesn't know who she is. He's going to spend the rest of his life not knowing. And some of us were like, no, his ass knows. Like, he's just going to kind of not talk about it. So, I think his ass knows. And I think he's going to kind of not talk about it. But then I think he's going to be haunted by that again later. Like, I don't think... So, my read on this is in the moment, it is this corny sort of, you know, he let it all go ending. But I don't think that the way this story continues off page, off screen, is such that that's it. And I like that. I like the idea that the way it closes is clean, but the way it probably closes in that extended timeline isn't. Well, and I think... Because I think Roland says right after they come back from talking to Junius or whatever is mm-hmm. they're like they they visit Julie Purcell's grave and yeah. Roland says like I just don't feel any kind of closure at all and yep I I gotta feel like Wayne probably has a piece of that in him too. What do yep. you think? What do you think the the intended effect was of ending the the season with the flashback of him in? Uh, Vietnam. I'm trying to think. There's another TV show or movie that does exactly this, and I'm forgetting what it is, but it's like the exact same setup. It's the same thing where you have this person who's been through this thing, and then they just end it with them. It might even be at war. I don't know. I don't, I don't honestly know. I think it, 
I, you can go big and be like, well, this was a whole generation of, of men who were effed up by this war. I don't know. I think it probably is just, it's just like another image of him instead of being alone on Shoepick Lane with the lights out. It's just showing him alone struggling to find his way. Like, I think that could just as easily be one of those scenes of him forgetting and being lost on the street looking around. Like, this is the earliest instance of him just losing himself. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. There's You can get fancy with it, but I think it might just be this was a defining thing in this person's life. I've read that, or some people think that there's a phenomenon wherein in moments before you die, it's not like a your life flashes before your eyes thing. It's more of like a you project forward and kind of imagine what your life might have been like in your final moments and so some people kind of wildly were speculating that this is just wayne's brain like crazy fast forwarding and making up kind of the rest of his life right before he's he's, he like steps on a mine or something which is man which i don't adhere to but i kind of like the the thought but i don't know i had a hard time like figuring out what exactly that was supposed to mean like if it was kind of calling because i remember the very beginning of the show, they made a very big deal about the fact that, like, this guy is a tracker, and he's looking for stuff, and, like, that's how he was able to track first the boy, and then he finds, like, more of the dolls and stuff, and they kind of let that go for a while, and I just wondered if they wanted to call back to us, like, this is a guy that's always searching, and, like, I don't know, like, he's a, he's a hunter, like, that's something that Roland says early on, and, I don't know. I thought I'm remembering. It- I'm remembering something now, which might have something to do with this. Which is at the beginning, he says, "I always thought it was before Vietnam and after Vietnam, but I realized it was before this case and after this case." Mm. Maybe it's kind of saying that he's reassessed that, or he was wrong about that. It wasn't before and after the case. It really was before and after Vietnam. Like he sort of. I actually now I'm really attracted to this idea, which is that he had structured his life as before and after the case. But in reality, it really was Vietnam. Like, seeing the horrors of Vietnam and being in this terrible place really was the thing that defined his life and not so much the case. Mm-hmm. I kind of think... I, I'm I'm most attracted to that idea because I think fundamentally that was, that was the thing for him. I do think Vietnam was the thing for him. And the show sort of forgets about it a little bit. You're right. But I think it sets it up enough early on that maybe we're meant to believe that that really was the thing for him. Yeah. Well, it's clearly open to multiple interpretations, which yeah. I think is also true of the end of season one. Damn straight. All right. Uh, you kind of got into this a little bit with timelines. Uh, one of the great things about season one, the timelines. Yes. The different haircuts, different facial hair. They certainly brought that back. You got to yes. pay attention to the haircuts. I love it. I think it was really cleverly done. It's nicely done. It allows you to reveal things in sort of a piecemeal fashion that doesn't feel cheaty or weird. Like, it feels a little cheaty and a little bit weird, but it's not, it's not like skipping something and then showing you at the end. Like, I always thought that the, showing the conversation between Jim and Pam at the beginning of season four, I think it is, after the kiss at the end of season three was just a little bit weird. It felt yeah. a little cheaty because it was one contiguous timeline that then changes. So I liked this. The timelines allow you to reveal things on your own schedule without, you know, shifting and bending the you know <laughs> the way time works and this is such an effective storytelling it's a, such an effective way to create yeah a really 
pleasing sense of uncertainty and confusion because you have like these anchor points where you're like, okay, I know that this is the state of things at this point in time and this yeah. point in time, but I don't know how we're getting there. And totally. And it slowly kind of each timeline moves at the same pace and you're kind of filling in the blanks. And yeah, I just love it because it's a lot to keep, it's like kind of a mental gymnastics to kind of keep track of it and. Uh, Ali just made this comment early on. She's like, they really nailed it with the haircuts because I immediately know what time yeah. I'm in based on that, which is really good work by them. Yeah. In, in season one, is it three timelines or just two? There's the old case and it's, then it comes it's back. It's two, it's two and a half. It's sort of like this where it's two, it, it's, this one's full three, but this yeah. season one is 19, 90, I think it is, right, is the first yeah. one, and then 2012. But they also show briefly the part where Rust has the girlfriend. Yeah. And then they have he and uh, uh, Marty's wife get it on. Yeah. That's like 2001 or 2000 and something. Yeah, but I primarily think of that season yes. as having two timelines. That's two. Primarily, that's two. This one was a little bit more complicated. Yeah, because Roland and Wayne they have to get back together to reopen this case, which yep. is exactly what season one is like. But then, and I think this is a huge differentiator for season three, like this late end game kind of, we really, really need to nail this down. Third timeline was, yep. I think in some ways, the most compelling, like obviously in terms of plot progression and action, like it's where the conclusion comes from. It's where our finality is. And also, I was just, like, blown away by those two actors and the makeup. Like, I believe that they were, like, 80-year-old guys. Which is wild. I want to, so I will probably talk about this a little bit more in other places, but I just want to single out the old men timeline as one of my favorite things. The, so I texted you, I, interestingly, so there's the episode where we see the pink room, and I think that's where everybody's like, whoa! And I definitely said, whoa, at that point. But I texted you yep. the week before to, to say, like, man, I am all in. And the thing that got me all, all in was the conversation where Roland and Wayne reunite as old men. That was, to me, that was one of the best 10 minute stretches in, in TV that I've ever enjoyed. It's funny because I was kind of following along with season one and I knew that at this point, cause you had texted me and I wasn't caught up yet. Yeah. And I knew that in that point in the season in season one was, yes, when, was when they did that, that crazy tracking shot through the trailer park. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, and then you told me there's this 10 minute stretch in this episode that is going to leave your jaw on the floor. It's like, Oh, fucking awesome. It's going to be the long track shot for this season. Yep. And was waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And then, like, halfway through their conversation on the porch, I was like, oh, fuck, this is it. Not what I was expecting, but I totally see what he's talking about. This is fucking incredible. Yeah. And it's a long, and if I remember correctly, it is it is kind of a long track. You know, the funny thing is it actually could be all one shot. Definitely a very different type. <laughs> very different but certainly not dramatic in the same way, but very dramatic. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of a nice, like, was that episode six? I think it was five. It could have been six, but I think it was five. I Whatever it was, it was kind of like, okay, like, this is it. It felt yep. like time for 
end game. It was like a really yeah. nice, and then the episode ends. It's like, okay, here yeah. we fucking go. Mm-hmm. It was a very, it was the same scene, technically, as the um, Rust and Cole scene where they meet up at the bar and they're like, all right, let's do this. Like, we got unfinished business. Like when he says, uh, actually, I second thought, you buy me a drink. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's and it's the same scene, but it, I think this nicely illustrated how different the relationship is in such a nice way, because it, it totally goes down differently. For sure. Yeah. All right. Number five, something you mentioned about specificity, Arkansas. The, the, the specificity of the setting, the nature, like the focus on the natural world, the chirping of, of you know, crickets, it just... Season two, season two was very California, which is fine. Like it was a specific place, but that California doesn't have the same color palette. It's too bright and it's, it's too warm and it doesn't, it doesn't feel that's, it doesn't give you that same sense of foreboding that the bayou gives you or that well, the Ozarks give you. I think it's a different sense of foreboding because I think 15%, literally, I'm trying to pick a realistic number, 15% of season two was just tracking shots of the interstate yes. overhead. Yeah. Love which, the highway. Which I'm into it. I love that. But like, it gives you this sense of like slowly moving time and like a machine of like a bigger, more civilized version of season one or three. Mm-hmm. But I, which I think it effectively did give you a sense of like the, like the workings of crime in a, in a place like that. But it's a very, different kind of crime which to be fair like that's what season two was going for it's more like a big businessy political type of yeah crime which is just not as interesting as like this elemental naturalistic kind of like deep-seated cultural crime that season one hundred percent that season one is all about and which season three wants you to think it's all about so and but even besides that like place is a really important thing in this season. We didn't even talk about that Michael Rooker is in this this episode, this sh- this show, which is incredible. Who's Michael Rooker? He's uh Yandu from Guardians of the Galaxy and he's oh. he's Hoyt, like the older Hoyt. Which yeah. Which I really liked. Yeah, that was interesting. I think I think what you say about the sense of foreboding is really true and we'll get into this kind of vision of, you know, big picture versus small picture a little bit with the crime a little bit later, but I think David Simon, the writer of The Wire, is entirely about the system. And he writes that so well that I don't really need anything else about how the system works. Like, that's a show that is just purely about the system and how it grinds the shit out of people. And it's so good. It's really nicely done. Nick Pizzolatto is like an emotional, he's a Catholic, religious writer. Like, his stuff is fiery, and it's about hell and heaven, and this that doesn't really lend itself as well to a cold examination of how bid-rigging works. It's just, it's not that interesting. It lends itself to examinations of people's souls, and that's that's something that I think is, is very different here. And the nature bit really conforms nicely to his style of writing. Totally agree. Did you watch Ozarks? I haven't watched Ozarks. I watched the first episode, and I don't know why I haven't watched the rest, because it was... Yeah gripping yeah but i when i remember when this the teaser for season three or they even announced that it was happening i remember being very skeptical because i was like uh 
like really we're, we're setting this in the ozarks like right after a show yeah. called ozark just came out and was very popular but yeah fortunately i don't think they overlap all that much it's not no. really the same kind of feel but yeah th- i think this is a very intentional setting choice because very early on we were like oh it was <laughs> do you know Carcosa? Shit could happen here <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Carcosa? Ooh. yeah all right so number four this is a, a very broad statement but i think it's very important good writing <laughs> uh, Season two had a very conspicuous lack of good writing. Season one had a lot of good writing, and season three also had a lot of good writing. Now, here's what I thought was very different and very interesting about the good writing in season one versus season three. Season one, the characters were saying things that nobody would ever say, ever. Nothing they said was something that a human would ever say. Nobody says, I can taste the psychosphere, smell the psychosphere, or whatever. It was delivered so well and directed so well some things we might be talking about a little bit later, that you believed them, but the writing was brilliant because it made you think about big stuff. Season 3 is also very sharply written, but much more grounded in the way people talk. I wanted to call out one line, which was my favorite line of the whole show, which was, I I keep forgetting everybody's name. What's the mom's name? Oh, I don't remember. Whatever, her name. Her her cousin was the creepo. Yeah, the weird guy. Yeah, so he was talking about his cousin, and he says she'd push and push until she got what she wanted, and then she'd keep on pushing until she got what she didn't want. And I just thought that was such a great line. Like, it just it t- it explained a character so well in one line of dialogue that sounds like something somebody would really say. Like, that sounds like an exasperated family member who's like, Jesus, like, she pushes, pushes... She gets what she wants, but then she keeps on pushing and she gets what she doesn't. Like, that's just, that's a real human line. It's really brilliantly written. And I thought it encapsulated the the feeling of this season really nicely. Yeah, I thought, I thought the only character that weirdly I thought was a little strangely, like, didn't feel quite natural was Roland at times. Like, he would say things that felt like a little too on the nose to Roland. He'd be like, God damn it, Roland. You need to, or not Roland, like, God damn it, Hayes, you know, and we call him, pur- I love what he called him purple. Purple. Me like, too. There's just a couple of lines from him that felt like a little bit off, but I thought that Wayne was <laughs> the fucking best. Like, yeah. Every time he spoke, <laughs> Devin and I were joking because he says, <laughs> he just, we're like, does this guy know anything? Because he says all the time, I don't know. <laughs> he said that like a million times. That is true. That is true, but that's what makes a good detective. Yeah, he felt, he felt extremely real and yeah. I just like loved getting to know his character and how they'd be in the car and he would just be like not paying attention at all to anything Never. that Roland said. He'd be like, I really think we need to go over here somewhere. And Roland would be like, can you believe what that motherfucker said? Like completely unrelated or he'd be like, yeah. Like, I want to go, I want to go do this. I want to go, like, get this guy or whatever. I, I particularly noticed that Wayne felt like a very real grounded character based on his speech style, which is attributable to the writing, but also obviously Herschel Ali's. Yes. One of the best and we, we will, have right and now. And we will be talking about that shortly. Yeah. I agreed. The people, the way that people speak in this show, specifically compared to season two. <laughs> Yes. Felt natural and in keeping with 
like what we know about their characters and where they live and that kind of thing. So Hondo P. All right. So that's going to bring us to some honorable mentions. Uh, I'll buzz through these quickly. Number three is the knowing angle of the show that it's written and shot like they know something that we don't quite know. Season one is all this philosophical bullshit that it kind of knows that you and I don't know. This one's just like there's this mystery. It's something weird. And I, they know something that we don't know. That's, it's a hard, it's hard to convey a feeling, but both of these seasons did a really nice job conveying this feeling that there's just something out there that we don't understand. There's something bigger than we have had really tried to think about yet. Totally. Yeah. So number two is consequences. So I've told this story before, probably on this podcast, but the moment that one Dill Pickles and I were out on season two, we were watching it together was when that raven masked guy shot the Colin Farrell character. Both of us were like, hell yeah, finally, the season is picking up. This is great. Yes. Awesome. <sighs> and then the episode ends and we look at each other and we go, you know, the only way that this would be ruined is if they shot him with a stupid BB gun or something. The next episode opens with Colin Farrell, <gasps> like touching his chest. Oh, thank God. Just a BB gun. This season, like season one, had real consequences. People really get hurt. People really change. They feel real things. That's really important, and it's something that this season did very well. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> the other thing that was really frustrating about season two is that I remember it was Dylan and Quinn and I, and Allegis probably too, we're about to turn on episode like four or something, mm-hmm. and we were complaining. And I was like, honestly, the only reason I'm still here for this is because Man, Colin Farrell's mustache is really something to be told. <laughs> and then the first shot of the episode is Colin Farrell completely clean-shaven. And I'm like, well, fuck, I'm out then. Well, that's <laughs> it. Why I'm am done. I here? Yep. But, I mean, th- there aren't consequences in the same way. Like, it's not like any major characters are, like, killed off. But I like that, th- I don't know, they skate over it a little bit. But there are definitely serious emotional consequences to... The, more, the moral ambiguity of their police work. And like, <laughs> yeah. Like, which, it's one thing I actually really liked. <laughs> They're kind of shitheads and, like, like to beat up people and get answers the hard yeah. way. And, like, they do that in season one, too, where, like, Marty beats the poop out of that guy. And But, like, it's not consequence-free because, remember, they they there's that kid that, like, was a bully and he had the kid's bike. And they scare the yep. shit out of him by very graphically talking about what would happen to him in prison. Yeah. And then there's that really compelling scene where they go back to him like 10 years later and his life is kind of shitty. And he says that to them. And it's like, you fucking did this to me. <laughs> and yep. that's what Wayne gets so upset about because he knows that it's his fault or at least partly his fault. It's like, can you believe mm-hmm. that kid blaming that on me? And like, he wouldn't be so upset about that if he didn't believe that it was there was some truth to it. And so I think yep. that's what you're getting at is like, seriously, there were big consequences to how they went about doing what they were doing. Absolutely. And that's an important piece of any show handling topics this weighty. You can't just throw things away. Yep. Good point. All right. And then the last honorable mention is that I think the show approaches its characters with a, a lack of judgment. It's, it's sort of a judgment free approach to the characters. It recognizes that these are people going through difficult things and doesn't ask us to just judge their actions as right or wrong, good or bad. It it sort of shows them, and it gives you an understanding of why people do the things that they do. And I think that's something that both of these season one and season three did really well. 
I also think at sort of a broader level, sort of a like a cultural level, I think it does a nice job of showing people who are sort of like in a place that's not really on the map right now and shows the way that they live and doesn't make you think it's stupid. Like season one, it shows people who live on the bayou and people who, you know, fish and hunt for their lives. And it doesn't say like these are stupid people in the same way that I think season three shows people who are deeply religious or people who really want to stay in their hometown, even though they have other places they could go. And it doesn't, it doesn't dismiss those things as dumb. It sort of explains why people would do that. And it ties in nicely to what we were talking about, like a sense of place. You kind of get a feel for what that area is like. Totally. All right. So number three is the way that this season blends the personal and the systemic nature of the crime. I think that season one did this very well. There's a sense of personal evil in the character of Errol Childress, while at the same time a sense that this system made him or allowed him to be the way that he was. I think season three also does that. And, and it gestures more towards the systemic nature than it turns out to like, you know, fulfill. But I think it, it, it does a really nice job of showing that this family did this thing because of something deeply personal, but it was enabled to do it by a system. I think season two is just about the system. Whereas I think seasons one and three do a nice job of showing that the ultimate perpetrator of some disruptive or, or evil act is one person, and here's how they were allowed to do this. They're a product of something else. Yeah, and but they still, but they still are themselves an actor. Yeah, no, for sure. And in th- this way, it's a little bit different because it's not like I can't remember the the Hoyt daughter's name, but it's not like yeah. she was a part of a a wider network of like organized yep. children abducting. But there are a lot of outside circumstances that kind of allowed her to be the way that she was and then a lot of enablers too like this junius character is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. because like i don't know you kind of feel you feel bad for him at least i did in the show because like here's a guy that has this girl that he's cared for his whole life and he's done some bad things now but you can kind of understand them Mm -hmm. and he's clearly having a hard time grappling with it so like it's (laughs) i think there's more leeway in this episode to feel kind of sympathetic with the perpetrators of the crime than there were in season one in season one it's kind of hard to do it you understand yes. how it could come about there's not really much sympathy to be had there but no so but i agree and in, in, in some sense you're seeing it on a very intimate level and kind of also understanding it from a wider perspective so that's number three number two the flat circle so i think that the the timelines allow this to work especially well in showing the way people's behaviors don't really change over time or how these patterns get ground into us and people kind of end up in the same loop. I think ultimately this is most interesting for the way it causes relationships to unravel. Like season one did such a nice job showing how Marty could try to be better and and there were circumstances in which he could be a little bit better but he had these tendencies that he just couldn't get away from and the different timelines show how he acted on those tendencies all those different times and uh, i think this show did it so well most especially through the relationship between hayes and his wife amelia i think that they do a nice job showing how both of them just have these patterns that they can't really break out of and the conversation where they talk about trying to break out of them is really, it's really heartfelt because it's an acknowledgement that they are like just stuck 
and they can't they can't kind of stop what they're doing. I like that to an extent. Like in the first season, it's kind of like you just you realize what these things are going to be, and you just kind of live with it. And yeah. whereas in this season, it felt like they were able to kind of progress a little bit. Like I think our understanding is that Wayne and Amelia by the end of it are kind of able to like they understand this about each other and they've been able to reconcile it. Yeah. Understanding that that's just how it's going to be. Whereas in season one, it was more like, all right, we're just going to have to deal with this in our own separate ways. Yeah. But it is the same concept for sure. Yeah. And I think really just beautifully done in both cases. And I think ultimately the, the fact that they at least give a really good effort at breaking out of this flat circle in this season is the thing that really defines it as different from season one, because I think season one, it's pretty clear. These guys never break out of their patterns, even, even though they, they have, like we said, those gestures towards like Marty's back with his family or rust finds religion. Like these kind of ideas, it sort of teases they're breaking out of the circle. I think there's a good understanding that they don't. Whereas this one, I think, (laughs) Even even though this sounds like it might be contradicting what I was saying about how I think it ends, I think the really, it's not so much the circumstance that sort of breaks them out of this circle, at least temporarily. I think in this season, it's an attempt. Even if it's temporary, I think these guys really give it a shot to break out of this flat circle. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So that's number two. Number one, the thing that most unites seasons one and three, the acting. These these shows were ultimately showcases for really mind-blowingly great acting. Season one was the beginning, or maybe sometime in the middle of the reconnaissance. Like he was, he was just lighting up the screen. He had done Dallas Buyers Club. He did this. He did Mud. He's on a hell of a roll. He does the Lincoln commercials, of course. Interstellar. Interstellar, yes. It was also part of a really nice little uh, Woody Harrelson run, which was great. The acting was just off the charts in season one, and I think really needed to be because, as we discussed, they were saying things that people don't say. And so to do that was was really incredible as actors. Season three, I came in just not sure what to expect because I knew who Mahershala Ali was, but had never actually watched him on screen. Hmm. I had seen Stephen Dorff in some stuff, but wasn't super familiar with him, didn't know of him as such a great actor. So Mahershala Ali was exactly as great as I had been led to believe. Like, no surprises there. I'm going to talk more about Steven Dorff, but only because it's not surprising. Mahershala Ali is like a 40-year-old two-time Oscar winner. He was he was 10 this whole season. He was incredible in every timeline and just outstanding. Steven Dorff was a revelation. I had no idea we could expect him to be anything other than imitation Marty, and I certainly didn't think he would be as good as he was. The interesting thing that I, I thought about as I was thinking about this category, he doesn't have relationships. So there's really no foil for him other than, obviously, Purple, and then to a certain degree, Tom, for him to sort of show you who he is. Because with Marty, for example, he had his wife, and you see who Marty is through his relationship with his wife and then with his daughters. Roland is just Roland. He has the dog, he has Tom, and he has Wayne. And Stephen Dorff is such an outstanding actor, does such a great job that he he tells you everything you need to know through those small relationships. 
I think that's kind of the point of his character is like yeah, but it's a it's a hard ta- it's a hard ask from yeah. an actor. But they also never really explain at all what happens between him and the woman he's dating in like the second timeline or whatever. But whatever, the I'm point, kind of in on that though. I'm down with that. That's, I, I think, think that's the point. It's like, part of him. Yeah, no, he was great, but I think. For me, like, I was, I'd, I'd never seen him in anything before, so that was a pleasant surprise for me. I'd seen Mahershala Ali in House of Cards, mm-hmm. so I knew that he was good, but not that I did not know he would be this good. I remember in yeah. season one, I actually didn't recognize McConaughey for like half of the first episode. Yeah. And I hadn't seen Dallas Buyers Club yet, so I was like, I, I don't remember ever being as shocked by a performance as I was with like it took until because the show opens with i don't like you see his like old like ratty haired long mustache mcconaughey before you see like the younger more clean shaven one and he's more Mm -hmm. recognizable in that form but i like couldn't believe that he was the the guy asking for (laughs) nothing snooty just some lone star (laughs) so that was i didn't have a a base level shock like that like (laughs) but in this season but yeah, like I think that's kind of the one, like probably the best strength of this show is that it relies very heavily on the talents of two people primarily to carry the weight of the show, and these guys are certainly up to that task. Potentially even more impressive than first season because they had to do it in three different timelines, and like <laughs> that was really really fucking impressive. And it's also just less of a showcase. Like I think I think in. 20 years, people are going to remember season one and they're probably going to forget season three. And that's fine. I get that. Season one was a revelation to a lot of people and it should, you know, stand the test of time. But I think those were showier roles. There was more anger and frustration and mystery and shit for them to work with. It's a big role. Season three was a lot more subtle. There was a lot more, you know, subtle gesturing and thinking and, you know, and and discussion for them to have to express a lot more. And I think in the hands of less capable actors, that scene with them as old men reuniting would have just felt kind of lame. But there was so much hurt, so much hurt communicated through the years by those two, especially by Dorf in that scene where they just... These are two guys who loved each other for a time and had lost each other. And it's just a work of great acting to show that so effectively on screen. Couldn't agree more, amigo. Yeah. What a lovely show. I don't know if you want to do any reordering. Nope. Not interested. I think you did a a really fantastic job putting this together, as you always do. Well, thank you, friend. I just loved this season. I was shocked by how good it was so happy i'm hoping this means that nick pizzolato can write other stuff now because i didn't expect him to be able to write something as similar short but different in a lot of ways from season one that was also good yeah it'd be interesting to see him flex his muscles in a different avenue yeah maybe someday <laughs> be interesting <laughs> yeah rom-com nick pizzolato the rom-com <laughs> the flat circle was it him or carrie or whatever, I don't remember his last name. Yeah. That was supposed, that was tied to maybe writing a Bond movie. I can't remember. It was someone related to True Detective. That's an interesting, I don't know. I know that Carrie Joji Fukunaga was super hot for a while and has done a lot of stuff people like, but 
I don't know. I can't remember. Pro- it would probably have been him, would be my guess. Yeah, I think you're... Yeah, never, then never mind me. No, no, but it could be. I, maybe we get an Idris Elba Bond written by Nick Pizzolatto. Be very dark. Get out of here. Yeah. All right, well, why don't you just go ahead and recap, and then we'll get out of here. All right, boss. Number 10, the theme song. Number 9, the Holmes and Watson dynamic. Number 8, the focus on male relationships. Number seven, this seemingly obvious ending that might have a lot more to it. Number six, the multiple timelines, even more multiple in this season. Yes. Number five, the stark and very scary at times nature. Number four, the high quality writing instead of low quality. (laughs) Number three, the blend of the personal and the systemic in the crime. Number two, that flat circle, baby, where you're doing the same thing again. And again. And again. And, again. <laughs> uh, and number one, just like the good writing, the return of good acting. No more Vince Vaughn, baby. <laughs> I thought Taylor Kish was actually worse, but... Yeah, he was, he they was were, horrible. They were both terrible. Like, that show definitely yeah. should have just been... Rachel McAdams. McAdams. Those two were those two were terrific. They were good. They would have been a good Holmes and Watson. Yep. Oh well. Yep. Alas. All right. Thanks, buddy. As you alluded to earlier, our theme and not top three musics were both composed by the incomparable Kevin McLeod. The wonderful. Yep. Yep. And our artwork was put together by Aaron Sant. Don't forget, if you want to look at more of her stuff, it's at Sant Design on Instagram. And if you were looking for us out on the internets, you should check us out on Twitter at Top10KM. Pro tip, just take a quick look and move on to our Instagram. Also at Top10KM. If you wanted to check out our Facebook group, we got one of those. Yep. You can email us at top10km at gmail.com. Yep. If you wanted to check us out on a different podcast app than you usually do, Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, check us out on Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, we can be found. That's true. Just to reiterate, with the email, tell us where we screwed up. Tell yes. us tell us topics that you want to hear. Like ideas that especially. Yeah, like if you have a list that you would love for us to put together, let us know. Or hell, if you want to be on the show and put your own yeah. list on here, reach out to us. We want to hear yeah. about this stuff. So, yes. Damn straight, buddy. All right. I'll talk to you soon, amigo. All right. Adios. Peace. I am all out of iced coffee. Oh, fuck. Yep. We've got an emergency on our hands. Most time to poop. <laughs>